in three, two, one. John, are we live? We're live, sir. What's going on, buddy? Not too much, man. Just loving this weather. Not sarcastic there, huh? Boom, a little bit. Perfect yesterday, and then today it sucks, and looks like it's warm again tomorrow. Mother Nature. That's April in Chicago, though. I heard they're supposed to get three feet in Minnesota, so it's making me feel real good. Today, three feet? (laughs) Well, all things are relative. Not too bad. (laughs) Not so bad at all. Um, Any shout-outs from you, buddy? Because we got a great show, and I'm excited to jump into the show. I concur. Uh, Real quick, just going back, as far as the weather, I was talking with some guys that were out salting, and I was like, you know, late season, ha, ha, ha. And they're like... We're garbage men. They just, we got calls because they didn't have enough people for today. So we're out doing this instead of doing our routes. We don't know what the hell we're doing. Ha <laughs> ha. It's like, I don't know if he was kidding with me or not, but they're working hard out there. So that's it. So I didn't see any salt trucks today. In the loop. I was oh, over by I Lake. Mean, I yeah. came from the burbs. Yeah. So. No, I was over by Lake Michigan. And uh, yeah, they're all over. But just, I mean, I don't know if they. Took it lightly. I think they were just joking with you, buddy. I don't know, man. They they were working hard. I'll just give them that. Okay, yeah, cool. That's my shout out. Just hardworking people. Well, I'm ready to jump into the show because I think it's going to be fun. Before we came live, for those of you watching, we were just chatting amongst the four of us, and uh, there's so much cool stuff to get into. I'm going to start with Johnny. Uh, we got Johnny Immerman from, and he's the founder of Immerman's Angels. It's an incredible charity. I'm not going to butcher what you guys do. It's a cancer-related charity. I'm going to let you explain everything you guys do because you're going to do it a lot better than I do. So thanks for coming. Well, thank you, guys. Pleasure to see everybody. Paul's got great stories, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I can't wait to hear some of these stories, too. (laughs) Well, thanks for having us. Um, Yeah, my quick story, and it's much more about a team than my personal story, but um, I was a lucky guy. Uh, Maybe sound crazy to some people, but in my 20s, I got diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, went through chemo, went through surgeries, had the best mom, had the great brother, a lot of great friends from high school that were there to support me. But the one missing piece was I'm looking around this room around me on chemo and no young people who could look in my eye and say, I understand. You know, I've been through this before. I get it. And I'm like, wait, I have to have a testicle cut out. I'm probably not going to be able to mail children. Um, what is, you know, life going to be like after this i just felt very isolated so a group of survivors and myself we got together post-treatment in the hospital and we just started saying hey let's build a network so nobody has to go through it like we did alone and nervous and scared and can't sleep before your first night of chemo because you have no idea what in the world is going to happen to you and so now we've been able to recruit as a team again it's always a team um, over ten thousand people who have either survived chemo Uh, and cancer, or a family member has, or a family member or spouse has been through it, or their child's been through it, but they're people who've been through the cancer journey who join us as angels of Immerman Angels. When somebody's newly diagnosed, they can be on call to step up and step in and take that call to share their story one-to-one and help that person. So if it's a guy named Jerry who's 40 with stage two colon cancer, and he calls Immerman Angels, we're like, hey, you got an old Marty in New York because he beat stage two colon cancer with the identical chemos you start on Monday. He's run the whole marathon. He's crossed the 26.2. He crossed the finish line, got his life back, grew his hair back. He's doing okay. He can help you and navigate you through this entire journey. Nobody should ever fight this alone, and everything's free. It's, of course, a nonprofit. 
Well, what an incredible story and what an incredible cause. And um, kudos to you for beating, doing the 26.2 and beating cancer in your 20s. You know, I watched my grandma who lived with us go through pancreatic cancer and she actually beat it, went into remission, came back. But watching her go through that, what an incredible idea back then for her to have been able to have somebody to talk to because, yeah, we were very supportive of her. Obviously, we loved her very much. But, yeah, it, it what a great idea. And I can't even imagine sitting in that room and just not being able to have anybody to relate to and talk to. Um, obviously, you started this after you had cancer. When you were going through it yourself, was it family? Was it friends? Was that what kind of kept you going? Well, thanks for sharing that about your grandma. I'm yeah. sorry she had to, to go through it. But yeah, it's like 1.6 million Americans every year are going to hear those words, you have cancer yeah. you know, every 12 and months. Crazy to hear in your 20s. You know, I mean, crazy to hear at any time, but in your 20s and then you look like a fit guy. I'm guessing you were probably fit back then, you know, just going through your 20s. And I put myself back as a 26-year-old guy. It would have never even been a thought in my head that that's a possibility. I was exactly the same way. I was in the gym, you know, playing basketball that morning. I felt 100%. Um, you're going out with friends. I was actually in a bar when I had pain and then I went to the hospital. And I was just hanging out with friends. Everything was normal. And so the last thing in the world I was thinking about was cancer growing up my body. But I think a really important point for all of us to be educated on is don't be foolish like I was. I didn't go to a doctor for five years. From 21 years old, I got my last blood test and checkup when I was in college, junior year, up to the day I was diagnosed. I didn't see a doctor once. Now that sounds crazy and foolish, which it is. And uh, the reason I share that is so no one else does that because when they found my cancer, it was pretty advanced and it spread from my testicle up into the pelvis, a little bit to the abdomen, behind the kidneys, almost to the lungs. Wow. Two, three months later, lungs, brain, you know, and we lose most people then. So time matters. And I think anyone out there who wants to take their, their health in their own hands, everyone should, you know, to get that annual blood test, meet with a doctor, get a checkup. I mean, that's how we're going to save more lives. I was a lucky guy who had advanced cancer and wasn't educated. But if we educate more people to go in more and get checked more often, we are going to save more people. If you find it earlier, it's a different fight. Yeah, and what an incredible piece of advice because my dad's a doctor, and I think back to my 20s, I'm thinking out loud, I don't think I went in every year. I mean, I, I race cars, so I had to go in every two years to get checked up because I had to. But Again, in your 20s, you just you don't think about it. But yeah, anybody listening who's younger, get checked up every single year. Every it makes, year. It makes Something sense. we all should do from the time we're like babies up until the end of life, right? You just have more options if you know what's going on in your body sooner. Yeah. And so once you guys started um, the charity, how did you start putting together matches? Because, you know, you, early on, you guys are a, a big charity now, so I'm sure word gets out better but when you first started how did you start matching people up so how we matched people in the beginning was simply um talking to survivors getting to know them using a simple address book on like a mac laptop and using keyword searching and we had i remember we had 10 people and we had 50 people then a couple hundred people and then finally we upgraded to salesforce which is really the database and the backbone of Immerman angels now which actually 
controls all our data and how we match and it can even keyword search i mean there's a lot of ways that help us to make sure the right two people are connected again we talk to everybody we get to know them whether they're a survivor and they want to be trained and become a mentor or they're sick and looking to reach a mentor and a survivor. So we talk to everybody, but yes, you gotta use the data. You're only as good as your data, right? Sure, yeah. Someone on our board taught me this a long time ago and he said, rule of accounting and any sort of data is garbage in, garbage out. So when we intake information on people and talk to them, whether they're looking for help or looking to give back, everything's gotta be accurate. These could be 20, 30 minute phone calls. Sometimes they're local in Chicago and they come in person. But we help people if you're in Europe, you're in South Africa, you're in, we're in 93 countries. You know, it could be anywhere wow. in the world. 93 countries so far. So um, some of these people, we Skype them. We Skype them, FaceTime them, wherever they are. We have a call center um, and 10 full-time staff that's on Wells and Randolph that is always there to help the people. Um, but that's what we use now. It's evolved for sure. Like everything you learn as you go in the beginning, it was much more off the cuff that we knew the small group and we could just mix and match people depending on personality types, depending on cancer types and depending on gender and things like that. And what we've learned is it's so key. You got to ask somebody who's newly diagnosed when they're scared, tell us the profile, like ask them, what's the profile of the best person you'd like to meet? who's been through it. And sometimes age is really important. They want someone their age. Sometimes the cancer type is really important because they want to talk specifics. Sometimes the treatments are really important. Sometimes race is important or sexual orientation. I mean, we don't care. We help everyone, anyone touched by it. But the only way to know how to find a custom match personal connection for that person is to ask them, what are your fears? What are you going through? Tell us your story. And then we can customize who we think is going to be the perfect person to guide you and be your light from the beginning of this this marathon to that that finish line. Oh, that's incredible. And I'm guessing a lot of those people who've gone and they've beat that 26.2, do they become mentors after the fact? Almost all of them. Well, thanks for your question yeah. because it's a really important one. You know, gratitude is a big reason why survivors do this, right? We, For me, it was two years of either living at my mom's house. I was a 26-year-old single kid and moved back in with my mom. She would drive me every day to eight-hour chemos. You can't drive a car. Right. You, know, you get this thing called chemo fog where you're, you're not really uh, alert, and it's just not safe for you or other people, of course. And so I was either on my mom's couch going back and forth or the chemo and uh, at the hospital. And I think when you come out of that, so many of us that have been through this, whether young or old, there's a level of gratitude that, that wait, like we're so lucky that we got out of this system. We crossed that finish line. We need to give back. And I think if you, if you add on top of that, when somebody mentored you through Emmerman Angels, they provided a volunteer that helped you through your journey. Almost 100% of those people, when they cross the finish line, are like, now it's my turn. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the human cycle of life is that, you know, what people help you with when you're in need and then you reach a point when you have a new knowledge, you understand this, this course, you know, this marathon, you know, mile two, you know, mile six, you know, mile 17 and a half, like, you know, the course because you've done it and you know, the finish line and you give people hope and you can come back to mile one and help the next person. It's gratitude that really drives these people to volunteer their time, their energy, and their stories to help the next person in the fight. What an incredible culture you guys have built because I, I, I 
couldn't imagine going through it. Obviously, watch grandma do it, but watching, um, you know, I've had friend, friends and friends of friends go through it. Um, just knowing somebody can, like you said, almost like a coach, kind of guide you through and st- give you the hope. Because I, you know, anytime I've spoken to anybody who's got any illness um, that could be terminal, hope is such a big factor of it and I'm guessing for you it was and Huge. being able to have somebody who's been through it and is okay now there well, there's a big part of that hope so you guys are building such an incredible culture they can obviously be in different states right so somebody could be you know somewhere else as long as they can communicate with one another that's right that they could lot. be in London you could be in Paris you right, could be in countries um, you know Algeria anywhere in the world and as long as they have an ability to either write letters, some people do that still, and some of our older people um, enjoy writing like handwritten letters to people across the world, and that's fine. I mean, we want to make sure they're connected and they have a human being who cares about them, who believes in them, wants to motivate them, and is uniquely similar. They've been through it, and so they can communicate in whatever way they'd like. Uh, most people, the phone is common. Um, emails, texts, things like that. Social Our media. Most common social media, right? Skyping. Some people do Skype. Um, we can remember somebody um, who was in Germany telling us that she was Skyping on her on her first day going into um, the hospital and going in for treatment, and that she had a, a survivor that we hooked her up with in New York, and it was like they timed it everything, and the survivor in New York was there, essentially virtually, yeah. for her first day of chemo, wow. and she could like was like in the room with her, and it's like such a, you know, a positive feeling of hope and and of help that this is an educated person who's been through it, and uh, and is helping this other woman. But point to point, anywhere in the world, there's so many ways they can communicate. Um, it's really we want to do whatever helps people the most, yeah, and wonderful. they get to choose how they want to communicate. And you guys, and I've, I've, I've read your site and I did a lot of uh, research into what you guys do. You help um, spouses and loved ones and other people who are, who are having to be there and give guidance because a lot of times those people have never had to deal with uh, becoming strong for somebody who is going through that as well. Thank you, Mo, for taking the time to do that. Caregivers are a key part of what we do. You know, you could have someone who says, you're helping my spouse and you matched you know, match them up with a great survivor, but I'm struggling. We have three kids. I got to get them to school. I have a job. My spouse has a job. Uh, it's, there's so much going on. I'm beyond stressed. And we're like, wait, you should talk to another spouse who says my spouse went through the same thing. The best situation is you hook up the same two right. groups, right? The right. same marriage couples that the ones that are sick, one that was sick is talking to the survivor and their spouse is talking to the other spouse. When you can do like a double hook up like that, that can work great. Um, but we also have situations where somebody reaches out and signs up on immermanangels.org and says, my four-year-old child, Isabel, has leukemia. And we're starting chemo next week, and the doctor says in two weeks she's going to be as bald as anything, no hair. You know, we are terrified this is happening so fast. we got to hook those parents up with another set of parents that can say, you know, our kid... Uh, Mike, he's now 14, but when Mike was Isabel's age, she was four. She had the same leukemia. We've been through this. We've asked the doctor all the questions. You know, she can do it. Our kid did it, and look at his picture now. He looks great. That's the hope and the knowledge and and um, the ability to really connect with somebody because that family just simply knows exactly what they're going through. Yeah, and the ease that must 
bring in such a difficult time to know somebody else is there who they can relate to. And obviously, again, I, I go back to the word hope. Give them hope that everything's going to be okay. Well, typically we take uh, viewer questions, but we have an in-studio question from Paul. Paul, you can ask <laughs> it if you awesome. want. This is awesome. He has Paul, a direct line. Paul, I'll, direct yeah, line. you have a direct line. Paul, go, I'll let you ask it. And we're going to, for everybody watching, we're going to get to Paul shortly. But I'm going to let Paul ask this question because it's a great question and it's his. Uh, one of the things that I want to know is when, at what moment, did you know that this is what you wanted to do? When did you have that feeling? So thank you, Paul, for the question. You know, it was mid-chemo, and it actually gave me courage and hope and purpose to want to really beat it and live even more than, you know, I had my mom, I had my brother, I had a lot of reasons to live, my friends, of course, hopefully we all feel that way, but it gave me an extra boost even on top of that in the middle of it when I said, purpose. I just yeah. was just thinking, I'm like, wait, I don't know the survivors. Why when I ask my doctors here, they tell me, I'm sorry, you're the youngest guy here and there's nobody else young. And you know, if we knew survivors like you, we'd introduce you, we just don't have any. And so I'm like, that clearly was the only need I had. So it was very clear how to give back for me. Cause I'm like, I'm probably not the only one. Yeah. And then that became clear. And I talked about my family and I realized like, Hey, when we're done, let's start making friends with survivors and let's build a network and let's all go back and help the next person who thinks they're alone, but they're really not like we have to build, build a bridge here. But it was right in the middle of treatment. We started realizing it. And it was also coupled with if anyone has been through cancer, um, listening when you take your iv pole and you leave your room and you know on there eight hours a day you get there like 7 38 a.m and you're there to like 4 or 5 p.m i mean you have your meals there you're there the whole day and then you go home and then you wake up the next morning you're back again at 7 30 a.m for another eight hour chemo day but during the day you take your iv pole and you're walking down the hallway and you can't help you're looking behind the glass like who else is in here and i was mm. absolutely stunned sh shocked to see how many people were all alone. Hmm. Most rooms was a person hooked up to chemo, isolated and alone. They looked so depressed. And I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, where are these people's families? Why is there no one here to visit these people to give them a pump up? Like, where would I be if I didn't have my family? I would be in a really, really bad place. And so that was part of it too, I think, that made it clear to the survivors as we became friends at the end of treatments and we're like so many people are alone you know we got to build a network so they have a buddy so they never feel alone i mean that really that's illustrated cool. the need yeah it was really clear and obvious to us we're like that's just the system's broken if you have people on chemo all day every day with no one else in the room that's not how to fight good vision yeah. Well, as a team, I always say this, you know, no one person does anything. If yeah, any one person does true. it, they built something. I suggest yeah. don't believe them. <laughs> yeah. You know, it takes a team. We are, you know, plural. It's angels. The reason it is, um, it's all of us. You know, the power is in the network. We're yeah. really the epitome of how teams can make a movement to, to, to move a mountain, to change the world. Yeah. Because when somebody calls us and they're in, you know, uh, let's say Spokane, Washington, and they've got a, a rare you know, cancer, a bone cancer in the toe, and there's four of these in the world every year, you know, the net, we gotta go to the network. You know, we might not know somebody in Spokane that beat that same rare type, but we might know somebody in Paris who did. And if we know that person and you hook those two people up, you've created a human bond that could change this person's world. So it's really awesome. the network. The network and the team yeah. 
is what it's all about. And if the survivors didn't care and they weren't grateful and weren't willing to dig back and share something so deep, scary, and personal, the idea doesn't work. You know, it's really the epitome of teamwork. That's one of the best givers gain stories I've ever heard. I mean, it, it's such like a, um, I mean, everybody is collaborating for the better good of the entire group of people. It's incredible. And so if you want to be a mentor, you can go on to your website and become a mentor, reach out to you guys. Absolutely. You can sign up online. It's emmermanangels.org. If you forget that, Google gives us a grant. Uh, we get $10,000 in credits every oh, year. So if you just remember, isn't it great that Google does that? A lot of people don't know that, but Google really helps us out and a lot of causes out. And so if you remember one-on-one -on -one cancer support, we buy those keywords with their credits, so we're number one in the world with that. So if you forget the name, that's okay. One-on-one -on -one cancer support will pop up number one. And if you're watching, John has put it in the uh, in the video feed. I just saw yeah. it pop up, so thank you, John. I have it up there for you, absolutely. You. If you're not somebody who's a cancer survivor, but you wanna be involved with uh, the charity and you wanna be able to give back or volunteer time, what ways can somebody who's watching John, me, um, anybody who's watching be able to give back. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. You know, our service is free. We just want to help more people. Our biggest, like, pain point yeah. is when somebody finds us after treatment and they're like, oh, my God, I would have loved to use that. Like, I wish I would have known. So awareness is everything, right? That helps us at least give them the opportunity to meet the people we know. They're such great people. Um, so... The only thing you need to do if you know someone who's fighting cancer, a uh, family who's going through it, or a survivor out there, if you get them to our website and they sign up online, we take everything from there. Whether they're looking for help or want to give help, but our team and our call center will, will triage and figure out how to help people. But if we raise awareness, we're just going to help more people. Well, that's wonderful. You guys got any events coming up? Because I know you guys have... I've actually seen you guys. We were talking off air about triathlons and marathons. I've seen you guys have groups that run events and, and stuff. I've seen them uh, when I used to live in Streeterville. I used to see them run down Lakeshore Drive. Thank you. I yeah, love that you're an athlete. You do tries and you... Doing a try. <laughs> <laughs> tries in the plural. That's great. No, but... Broadism Speaks, which is a wonderful charity. Yeah. I'm very familiar. They're a great group. You know, our latest startup, we have about 100 charities and we build out their online apparel stores for about 100 charities. So we have several in the autism world and uh, we've spoken to them before. We're not working with them yet, but it's free for charities and our goal is to help them all create awareness through building higher quality apparel that's actually cool swag. Um, charities kind of struggle with making the cooler stuff. Are now. you wearing cool the cool swag this, today? This is the higher quality stuff. Yeah, oh, our, cool. our, our startup's called Close Talk, C-L-O-Z Talk. Okay. And it's free for the charities. So we, we kind of flip the model by being sort of social impact guys. We realized after 15 years, to fix the broken model, you can never take anything from the charities, which we don't want to. But we really can't because they don't have the money, the time, or the energy anyway. Let them serve their mission. And then what we do is we build out, if they partner with us, we partner with them. On our store, um, closetalk.com, we build out an online apparel store. We have their mission on there, a video that explains their mission, what they do, why people should care. But then right next to it, if you get inspired, you can shop. 13 types of apparel from hats to yoga pants to hoodies to track jackets to tees and everything's high quality but it's made one-offs on demand and that's kind of how we're different so the charity can focus on their mission not figuring out which brands buying 500 units at once and then 
you know, wasting inventory. There's no inventory for them or for us. But we want to encourage people to really understand and be educated. You are volunteering if you buy a $20 t-shirt or a $19 hat and you wear that logo. Someone sees it. Someone might ask you about it. If you tell them, you might make a new friend, but you also can spread the word about what those missions do and why you care about it. And I think that's how we brand the causes. We're committed to solving this problem for free for the charity and branding them from each other on the ground, face-to-face. A little bit of a pushback on social media, which no, no, nothing personal towards social media, but this is really a play that's boots on the ground, higher quality apparel, and a little cooler logos that people we think are willing and want to believe they can make a difference by wearing. I, I love that. When did that come about? Was that, We're about was a that, year into okay, it. Good for yeah, you. I'd say about like 80% of my time now is on Close Talk. And we hired somebody a lot smarter than myself that got to uh, Stephanie Lieber to hire to, to run Immerman Angels. So she's been a great addition. She comes with 20 years nonprofit experience. Most recently had a development at Children's Museum of Chicago, a much bigger organization than Immerman Angels, and she's doing great for us. So it really frees me up. I'm a, I'm a startup guy that loves the thrill of solving social impact problems. Very hard, but it's fun. And you go seven days a week and you just... You know, the, the goal is if we solve this problem, you know, we really envision a world that's a better world, that people are rocking logos for causes and we educate each other and we bring people together about positive conversations and positive movements. Well, you're doing incredible things. We got another question. Go I got on. another question. Yeah. Oh, Paul, thanks. I'm Paul. flattered. Yeah, Let me I'm, tell you, I'm Paul's got it. great stories too. I don't want to yeah, take I'm any about, time away I'm from Paul. I'm about to get to Paul too. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> He's got great for that. Stories. I'm curious if uh, you were always the guy that you are now before you had cancer? Or did the cancer change you? Thank you for asking. You know, I think if you talk to the average cancer survivor, almost everyone would say it's changed them in different ways, but most of them positive, you know, because we've met thousands through Immerman Angels and I've personally met thousands and talked to thousands over the years, people that we work with and people that we serve and, and almost all of them the majority will say what I'm about to say is you, you know, it was hard. It was tough, but you wouldn't change it. It's made us more probably compassionate, more connected. I think I've cried twice already today in two earlier meetings. And it's what is it? Three o'clock or something? Three thirty. I mean, it, it's, I, I think it, it softens us in a very healthy way. Um, so you were kind of that guy in hiding before you had, yeah, I, I was, you know, raised by kind of a single mother. I mean, I have a natural dad, but they were divorced and he was never involved. So I was really raised by a woman. So the softer side from the woman's side, I would say my mom is very gentle and the emotional side was always easier for my brother and me, probably by how we were raised. But I dove, I, I'm much more comfortable now jumping into it, talking about emotions and deep yeah. stuff like life and death and talking to families that are like, you know, I've got a four-year-old child and I have stage four pancreatic cancer and this, I want to see my kid grow up and have a life and protect my child and is she going to be able to pay for college? And yeah. I mean, these are deep issues. And so I think going through cancer made me much more comfortable talking about the hardest of the hard in a good way. And in my opinion, it makes me happier. It makes me feel living more connected 
um, to people and what matters. And definitely it changed me in a big way, Paul, to answer your question. Maybe the biggest way it gave me the courage to quit my day job in the corporate world. I used to work in, you know, commercial real estate and be a, a proper, uh, like a property manager and area director for a bunch of properties and wear a suit and tie every day. And nothing against that. And I have a lot of friends that are in that industry. I love them all. I mean, we're all different, but it, it the way I reacted and change was like, wait, I'm not on this planet for that much longer. None of us are. Like, let's yeah. solve real social problems. And I want to do it not just after work on volunteer. I want to do it all the time. That's and cool. I'm very blessed that, you know, our That's team good. has found a way to be able to have a career doing it and, and be able to help people and feel great about what we do by day and by night. So we're, we're grateful and we're lucky to be able to do that. Do I really have to go on after him? Trust yeah. me, Paul's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul is awesome, and your journey is <laughs> no, incredible. It's, it's amazing. Thank I, um, you so much for sharing with us. Thank you. It's yeah, amazing. no, really appreciate it. You know, I always ask everybody to give a piece of advice for entrepreneurs, and you can absolutely do that because you're an entrepreneur. Um, a, a little spin on that, you know, I think what you've gone through with cancer and overcoming it, and then obviously speaking to thousands of people who have cancer, um, you probably have a much higher appreciation for life than the average person. If somebody's going through a hard time, whether it be cancer, an illness, or a sickness, any piece of advice you would have for them if they are that person kind of sitting there with that initial feeling that you may have had, you know, wow, I'm 26, or even if you're 36 or 56 or 66, and this doesn't seem like it's a fair thing to me. Paul and Mo, thank you both for your comments, and thanks for your question. You know, um, the advice when you're going through a hard time, which I was post-treatment, the next two years, after the two years of treatment, in some ways were equal, to sometimes harder emotionally than the cancer. The build back up phase, the trauma, the I look in the mirror and just cry because I'm like, who is that person? That's not what I remember. It's not who my self-identity is telling me I am. You know, I'm overweight, I have no hair, no eyelashes, no eyebrows, my skin's bleached white, dark eyes. I'm like, you look, this person looks half dead. Yeah. You're poisoned, which you are. And that emotional trauma of how you look, how you feel, not being social and going out with friends like we do and enjoying life, how to learn how to do that again, and then how to work and what I want out of life. There was so many, that was so tough for me that what I really learned is how I healed, even though I didn't really realize it was, it was happening at the time, was through giving back. But I knew that felt good. And I knew that as bad as I felt about myself, and I knew as low as my confidence was, 0.0 on the scale, about everything about myself, when I went back to the center and those people wanted my friendship and to talk to me and to learn and to say, wait, you beat what I have and like, like, you know, did this happen to you? And what did you do about that? And what'd you tell your mom about like this and that? And like, you just connect through healing those people is how I healed myself. And so the people who go through any challenge, whether it's cancer, whether it's divorce, whether it's the loss of a family member, that's your best friend. I think the key is to try to convert that into something good and something positive. And by helping someone that's in a worse place than you are is how we pull ourselves out of the hole and we heal. And I think it's just super, it's just human. That's who we are. We're social creatures. We're all connected. And when we stop and get outside of our own trauma, 
and help somebody who's really in a worse place. That's how we're going to start the road to healing. Well, you're an incredible guy, Johnny, and uh, inspirational. I mean, I'm I'm taken aback, motivated. Um, you're an inspiration, and I can't thank you enough. And I feel like Paul probably feels the same way, and John too. Definitely. Listening to this, um, your story is incredible, and I appreciate you candidly sharing it with us. Thank you. I've had a great team around me. I will tell you again. You'll hear me say the word team probably a hundred times a day, but like we've got it's it's the team. Whether it's your family, your friends, survivors. That's how we get through things, right? It's it's community. And I'm excited for the roundtable after we're done with Paul with you two also chatting about everything <laughs> because this is going to be fun. Um, I'm going to move over to Paul because I Paul's think awesome. I, oh, I, I cannot <laughs> wait to hear some of his stories. For those of you watching and didn't have the uh, privilege of hearing some of the stories before we came on air, uh, Paul, and I don't want to butcher your last name, Audia? Yeah, Audia. did a good job. It. A lot of vows. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's the founder and CEO of Audia Motion and Still Photography. If you haven't checked out his website when we announced him, check it out. It's unbelievable. I'm going to try to share parts of his book in a second. Um, he's taken photographs and videos of literally every place in the world and almost any career influencer. You, you've been everywhere from TV, movie, sports, the Pope. Um, thank you for coming on and Tell us how you got into photography and what uh, audio motion and still does. Well, I'm going to start out this way. That's not my book. Not your book, correct. <laughs> the book it's, that you brought in. The Pope and Loyola Press yes. are the two people that actually put it together. I was one of the photographers. I think I shot over 50% of it. Uh, but that I just want to clear that up. So that's a is that okay? It's your artwork, man. To me, it's your It, it is a big team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Much bigger than I am. So what was the question? The question is, how did you get into photography, and what does audio motion and still do? Uh, how did I get into photography? Well, uh, I was... Uh, how far do you want me to go back? When it's first photograph you took, maybe. Uh, I, I was a kid, and my parents gave me this little uh, brownie, or not brownie, but the little camera you looked down in. It had a little flash on top with a cube on it and said, uh, get a picture of us with our friends. <laughs> and so I, I took the photograph, and then, you know, black and whites came back, and I was just like enamored with it. But I buried those for a while, and fast forward, and I still had those feelings. And uh, I was in high school, and I played some sports too. And I, I was directing the photographers on homecoming pictures and stuff. I'm saying, go over there, do that. You know, hey, this would look cool if we went over here and had the girls laying on the grass or something. You know, and and so I, I knew I had some sort of idea of where I wanted to take it, but I just didn't have that feeling. That's one of the reasons why I asked you that question. When did you know that this is what you were going to do? And so um, I didn't know it at that time, and I, I got into radio, progressed into that, had a small ad agency, uh, you know, did, cool. uh, drove a bulldozer. Uh, you know, you talk about a, a varied um, <laughs> lifestyle. But I think that everything that you do in life brings you to this point that we are right now and and mine happened to be photography and this book brought me um everything that i did prior to this brought me to this book even though it had nothing to do with the book you know i shot fashion i, I grew up in west virginia i photographed mary lou retton uh you know we were, i was friends with her neighbors and stuff and I, I played golf with her brothers and but and then I moved to Chicago and I kept going. I was doing more fashion stuff and I did, I was the bridal king for a while. 
can you imagine me, the bridal king? You know, I, <laughs> but it, it, it happened. I was in the merchandise mart, and I, I had space there, and I, I shot a lot of their programs and their stuff. And I, I, one of the magazines uh, asked me if I would go and go to New York after they saw what I did. Say, hey, would you come to New York and shoot some of the, the runway stuff? And I, and I was going, you know, it didn't take me long to answer yes. <laughs> sure, and, uh, So um, I went up, and I did that for like six years. Um, and I, you know, when you're in the right places, you meet a lot of different people. And being in New York is totally different from being in Chicago. Not that it's bad or worse; it's just different. And you're in that mecca of those people. Vera Wang, I photographed for, uh, you know, Carolina Herrera. You know, a lot of different people that were in that bridal industry. One of the, my clients was used to cut the dresses for Oscar De La Renta. So she was actually the person behind the scenes helping design them and cutting, even though he had the name. And um, so anyway, I did that for a while. Prom gowns, you know, I was a king of prom gowns. You should see me in a prom gown, by the way, too. <laughs> I look hot. So, did you photograph yourself in the prom gowns? I, I did not, but the I old school selfie. <laughs> I do have a few uh, makeup artists that uh, were on the set that ended up running out on when we were shooting out on some location with the dress on. But anyway, awesome. so that that kind of led me. Um, you know, it, it was a varied um, history of of things, and and that's what I think. You know, gave me a little bit more of an advantage than some other people may have had. You know, like driving a bulldozer. How many people in this room and in this building can say they've driven a bulldozer before? Not me. It is one of the coolest things. Hey, can we talk? How do we talk on here? Can we talk about, can we say anything kind of? You can say whatever you want on here. Okay. There's nobody <laughs> saying that we can't say anything. Do you know what PEV is? No called penis extension vehicle oh, yeah. i have actually heard that i'm a car guy so i've, I've heard this okay before. so it's like a car but a man driving anyway so yeah. I, I don't want to get off topic but all these things lead you up to this and and i had no idea i was ever going to photograph anything for the pope i had you know it wasn't in my purview at all so uh one of the art directors named jill arena who i got to thank a lot for this let me this grab book. this book and i'm going to hold it up while you're explaining this and um, you know everybody at loyal it was a huge team effort but jill worked closely with me on on the concept on the look and and uh, when we started out whether or not i was taking the right photographs and gave me some thought of how to do it even though the rosemary lane was one of the editors tom mcgrath you know, older and younger. Rosemary's uh, not even 30 yet, and I think Tom McGrath has just retired, and they were all Loyola. So uh, they, they questioned, Jill called me. I'd worked with her before in the past, like uh, prior to 2009. We were talking about the things that changed after 2009, and uh, she is an art director for Loyola, and she gave me a call and said, hey, uh, what do you think about this? And, and immediately I thought, this is awesome. This is going to be cool, you know. So um, I, I agreed to do it and um, I went on the uh, road and shot from uh, Cleveland, uh, Chicago, um, parts around this area, L.A., um, and then went to uh, Europe. From oh, Actually, before I went to Europe, I went to New Jersey. Uh, one of the guys in the bottom left-hand corner of the book was a former bomber pilot. And uh, he passed away in December. You want to show it again, John? Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he was, uh, you know, uh, I, I photographed him in September of 2017, and he passed away in December. Wow. And, um, but anyway, so these are the stories that they're trying to put into this book, is to make the connection to, um, to the youth 
that uh, these people that are older and have this wisdom are actually not going to be around much longer. And um, the Pope is the one that directed it and said to another priest uh, that works with him in the Vatican, go, go to Loyola Press, figure out a way to make this connection. And so that's how it started. Jill got me involved, and um, I, I am so thankful for it ever since. And the trip, I, it was, uh, I went from Ireland to England to Malta to Sicily to uh, Italy, uh, Venice, uh, Slovenia, back to Venice, back then to Poland. And then uh, at the last minute, it was midnight, and there, um, I got a call in Poland, and um, from, I think it was Rosemary, and said, hey, uh, can you go back to Ireland? I said, well, how bad do you want? It was midnight, and I was, my flight was at 6 o'clock. The next morning, to go back to Italy. I said, how bad do you want me to go? We really want this person. And, and she was a 92-year-old woman that's an artist. It's amazing that's in the book in Clifton, Ireland, which is on the, the West Coast. And I, I'd been there before for National Geographic shooting some stuff, so I was real familiar with the area, and I knew how beautiful it was. And so I said, you know, if you want me to go, I'll go. You know, I'm yours, baby. I'll, I'll make it happen. And so I changed my flights at midnight and ended up going back to uh, Ireland. Um, uh, but all of it is a culmination of a group of people as, you know, there's no I in team, right? <laughs> hate to use that, but it, it's honestly true. Everybody did. I did my part. Uh, Unbound was another group of photographers that it does a, a charity work that's amazing that I got to meet the people when we went to the Vatican and um, talked to the Pope and he presented it and so uh, ask me another question because well, jo John <laughs> asked a question. What's the name of the book? It's oh. sharing the wisdom of time and it's actually by Pope Francis and friends uh, Pope good. Francis directed it and they also uh, he is the one that wrote in the book after some of the interesting stories that these people have the Holocaust survivor, and if you want to hold that up, sure. uh, it's in the book it's too. This gentleman, yes, his name's Erwin Froman. Uh, he was—I forget his age. You know, I get some of the stories mixed up after a while, but he—he was—I had such a good time. He was really cool, and I got him to tell me the whole story. So some of these people are timid. They don't, you know, as as you talked about in some of your cancer treatments. You know, a lot of people—they don't know what to say. They don't want to talk about it. They kind of bury things. And he, even though he spoke about it to different groups, he didn't want to be um, promoted because of the ill things that have happened with the Holocaust. What I think is incredible, and I, if anybody's looking through his photos and you, you take a look at the photos, you know, it's difficult to get somebody to tell their story verbally, but you do such an incredible job of getting them to tell their story in a photograph, which, you know, and I'm looking at this lady here and... You know, everybody's story looks like it's told in your photographs, which almost seems like it's a million times more difficult than having somebody actually say their story to you. And I, and I love what you've done here. And the, the premise behind the book, what an incredible premise to have young people be able to learn from all of the um, experience of these people that, like the Pope said, might not be around that much longer. How long did it take to shoot everything for the project? It took me about uh, three months or so, you know, give or take on and off, you know, different areas. But Lots of traveling. A lot of traveling, but it, it was fun. You know, I, 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 Europe was the funnest part. You know, I, I, was, I, I tried to keep cost at a minimal. 
Uh, I used a, 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 when I could get a Fiat Panda as the car of choice, it seemed like the wheels are like about this big, you know, and, and my equipment was in the back seat and there was no room. You know, my clothes were the, the least amount of stuff that I carried. But one of the things that I, I, I want to point out is you, you mentioned something a little bit ago about how do you get these photographs of people. And uh, one of the things that I try to do, I start out with a blank canvas. So even though you may be feeding me information, so I sponge as much information as I can. But when I go into that moment that I'm going to photograph someone, I want it. I want all of those thoughts to be away, so that I can be uh, uh, bombarded by the information that they're giving me. And by that dance, if you will, between the two of us that are talking or looking or trying to move around, uh, you you feel something. You get a feeling for who that person is or what they need to be looking like. Or, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but um, I'm, you, you're guided by the project and the people in the project less than I am ahead of time, even though the head of time is important also because you have to be prepared for everything, right? Preparation is like key. But at that moment, you have to live in that moment and be prepared for whatever ever happens. And there's like, there's a ton of stories I can tell you about craziness that happened being lost. You know, you, you mentioned the woman from Slovenia in that book. I had... I had lost, or I didn't lose. The, the prior to that, uh, I, I, you know, in my little car, I uh, went to uh, one of the women that's in the book is Demania, is her name, and she had cerebral palsy all her life. They call it cerebral paralysis at birth. Never had walked in her life, and was going to thinking about committing suicide on, a, on multiple occasions because all you know all her friends could run and play and stuff. So. Um, but anyway, Demania was, was cool, but it was, that was the shoot before, um, uh, Berta is their name, Berta. It's, uh, I found out how to pronounce it properly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so I went in and I was shooting Demania before that. And I went in for my equipment and I went to grab a flash. So I used like pro photo gear, you know, uh, you know, stuff that's very portable. I had, I had one bag with equipment, uh, you know, flash equipment, tripod, whatever, little, you know, mini tripod and a, and the other bag was um, uh, my camera gear and the batteries because they don't let you take lithium batteries on airplanes. So the cool thing was I would put them in the camera bag because there were many times I wanted to put my camera bag into the airplane or, you know, underneath, which I didn't want and never wanted to happen. Sure. So I, I'd open the bag up and I'd pull it up and there would be all these lithium batteries in there. And they look at me, okay, you can bring it on. <laughs> so, anyway, okay, where was I? Uh, uh, Berta. Berta, Berta. So uh, I, I'm looking into the uh, bag to, to, to find the slave that powers, it's a trigger that powers the flash, you know, remotely, right? So, and it fits on top of your camera. And I looked in and I cannot, I cannot find it. And I swear, I thought the day before, after I photographed Demania, I, 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 had, I had it. Because I do a check of all the equipment and I looked and I couldn't find it. And you know, you get this drain of body fluids after a one, you know, for a second or two. And then you think, you know what? I think part of what life is about is being in that moment and figuring and working around all these little things. So, you know what? Maybe it's a higher power telling me that that's not what I needed. So what I did, I, I put her in a couple. I opened up every window. I mean, it was raining. Every window, every light, every shade was open. I mean... You know, because it wasn't a real bright house to begin with. And um, 
I put her in a couple positions in this, and, and, and if you see, there's like all these crazy um, things hanging up on the wall and everything. And I had I, I, one of the translators uh, who uh, the book is also in Slovenian language too. Uh, she was there, which thank God because I know Google Translate would not work <laughs> on Slovenian language. You know, it, it was like it, it, so I had knew nothing. I couldn't even say hello. So. Um, I um, I had I, re I got her to hold the reflector. I did have the reflector in the bag. Opened up the windows, and this was after. So one of the things I start photographing them, you know, while we're talking. So we talk first, and then I just pull the camera out, and I just start talking. You know, I'm, I'm shooting and I'm talking, and I still continue with the conversation to get them somewhat relaxed, because a lot of people, and including myself, I was photographed yesterday for the Daily Herald, and the and You're camera shy. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, the guy's shooting like I might shoot, and I'm going, oh, wow, i got to quit paying attention to him. Yeah. <laughs> Candid so, photos. Yes, so um, uh, she did wonderful. Uh, the girl, I had her holding the reflector in a couple different places. And, and you know what? And I think that's kind of what made the photograph. I mean, it's not perfect lighting. It's not perfect. And I think that that's, that, you know, the look, the feel, her comfortability and the if that's a word you know in the photograph is kind of in my opinion is what made it made it what it was this is another one of her too so oh outside of her yeah. house yeah i saw that going in and i said this is like a storybook and i said i have got to photograph this and so it started raining and stuff and Can you hold it up john it started raining and so i went back outside and um it, after we did the shoot so i i had it covered i knew i had a good shot right and I said, we have got to do another photograph with you by this little window by your door. And so she, uh, she went out. She was lovely. We had so much fun. We laughed. One of, one of her stories, you know, again, it's the story that the people say more than it is the photograph. Uh, but she uh, taught people that were troubled students. Um, I forget the term. Uh, they were more or less cast aside because they were trouble, right? Uh, and they couldn't get through high school. And uh, her thing was that love and respect was missing in their lives. And uh, because of that, they acted out. And by acting out, then they became disturbed or whatever the case may be and went into a different school system. And she felt that uh, if you gave people, anyone, love and respect, then they, they would react to that. And not having that is what made it and that's one of my lessons that I think I took away from this book was, you know, no revenge, you know, the Holocaust survivor. People have these, they have reasons, much more than I have, to be mad at someone, but they don't. It's interesting. And I'm sure you took a lot of life lessons from all these different people. Um, shooting people seems to be a very difficult thing to do, and you've, you've got an incredible art form and mastered it beautifully. When... Prior to doing this, you shot some fashion, you shot some um, wedding dresses, you were the wedding dress guy. Um, but the Nat Geo stuff was all nature. You know, I, I've seen photographers that are really good at one thing. So I know real estate photographers, because I'm in the real estate world as well, they're brilliant at shooting real yeah. estate. You're brilliant at shooting virtually everything. What, how do you hone that skill set? Is it just something from your passion you were able to pick up as you went or was it practice was it something 
that made you so able to shoot beautifully when it's a person, beautifully when it's uh, nature, beautifully when it's a wedding gown? Because it's such a different thing to shoot. Well, let me correct you on the Nat Geo stuff. Okay. Okay. I, I photographed uh, the clothing catalog. Okay. That they used to do. I mean, they, they don't do it anymore. They sold off that branch after Murdoch Bottom, I think, or whatever. But I did it for like six years. And uh, we would go to locations. And it wasn't like I was living in a yurt or something. I was usually in a B&B. You know, we had makeup models, you know. You, you still have to produce it, right? And uh, so I was much more comfortable than most of the Nat Geo guys that do this for a living, that go out and live in a yurt and do those kind of things. So I, I don't want you to think that I was, I was that part of it. I was a different part that helped them, you know, with revenue. But uh, I enjoyed it, and we did a great job. And, you know, and if, you, if you guys, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to share this with you, but I'll show you a video when we were shooting in Guatemala that makes everyone laugh of me. We'll love to see it. Love to see it. And if you want everybody else who's watching to see it, mm -hmm. we'll just put it in the comment section and they can yeah. see it too. Okay. Is it good? It's, it's pretty funny. The, well, you, you kind of brought up video and video was something I wanted to touch on. You do a lot of video as well. I don't want to just say you're, you're only doing photography because if you go on your site, you have some incredible video work now. Thank you. Thank and you. video has become kind of the big thing when it comes to social media when it comes to marketing now when did you segue from doing photos to doing photos and videos uh i think it was probably about six years ago and it wasn't much of a segue it was just more of a natural uh, you know my brain works in images right and whether it's motion or still it still has you know it still has that same process when you said you raced cars yeah when you visualize the track yeah so always. you're you're looking at it whether you take a snapshot of it or you you're around the track driving all the time you're, you're thinking right sure. so my brain always worked that way maybe a little more on speed than some of the other people <laughs> that do not literally but it just moves very quickly <laughs> so um i think uh you know you know we're, we're all raised or we all have these uh passions and potential for things and uh, most of us are lucky in life if we're able to do those things that we're passionate and, and compassionate about. And uh, this happened to be one. I started out in radio. I, I did all kinds of crazy stuff, drove a bulldozer, as I was mentioning. And I just did all kinds of crazy stuff that brought me to where I am right now. And I'm grateful for it because it's given me a different look, a different opportunity to see things. So if you're a client and you come into me, you know, uh, and you say, I want to, I want to do this photograph. I've got all this thing in the back of me that I've experienced in life. I used to skydive, I skydive for like five years or six years or something, you know, all these different things that, that brought me and make me see people in a different light. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the janitor or the president of the CFO or, or, or CEO of a company, which I've done stuff for corporate, a lot of corporate people and CEOs. I treat them all the same. I don't treat, treat anybody any differently. That's wonderful. I had a question pop up. Somebody texted it and they said, as technology has, it, just, it went away, but the gist of it was technology keeps moving very fast. So yes. the technology of photographs and everything is probably moving very quickly. Um, how do you combat that? Is it, is it welcoming to you? Because you've had a skill set of photography, like you said, from back when photography was very, very different to how it is now. How do you, how do you keep with the times of the changing technology? 
Uh, I've always embraced it. However, I don't lose my past. So I love technology. I, when, when Kodak came out with the first um, 35 millimeter type can, uh, camera, <laughs> it was Nikon actually at that time, but um, a Nikon body. I, I was in on it. I was working, did a few things with Kodak to test the colored charts and a few other things. I had friends. And so I, I just thought it was cool. That doesn't mean that I don't like film. It's getting harder to get it processed, but film is starting to come back a little bit. I still save two cameras that are film cameras that I, I won't get rid of. And they're uh, Fuji uh, six by eight. So it's like six by eight centimeters that the back rotates and at the front end is like a four by five. So it tilts, shifts, rises and falls. So uh, it's not hard to embrace technology, but I still uh, remember what was happening in the past and it helps again helps me to be who I am when I come to a table to an ad agency or whoever the client may be uh, you know but you were talking about video video and uh, photography I mean the, the well, videos changed a lot very quickly too yes and and that's why it was a good question because video has changed a lot it makes it more available to people and easier uh, you still, it's still that vision. So I, I think you can give anyone a camera in this room and we'll all take different photographs. That doesn't mean they're good or bad, but all of us have different visions. And so what you want to do, or what hopefully people find in me, they find my vision and they hire you because of that vision, not because you're shooting film or digital or whatever the case may be, or you have a hundred thousand Instagram followers. And I, you actually just answered my next question. My next question was going to be, you know, now with the accessibility of everybody to have a camera or I can just grab my cell phone and take a photo or a video, how do you set yourself apart from the millions of people who are trying to get into photography? And it's your passion and your vision, it sounds like, is a, is a big part of it. Hmm, that's a good question too. And I'm not sure I have an exact answer, but I think it's that point of who you are. You know, how do I see things? How did I grow up? How did I envision? How, how did Jimmy get to the point of where he is right now? You know, uh, he had uh, life circumstances that brought him there. That, But I, you know what? Salvador Dali. Remember Salvador Dali, the, the mustache? Mm -hmm. He, uh, I was in France, in Paris, and I went to his museum, and I saw this T-shirt, and it said, everything alters me, nothing changes me. I bought that T-shirt and I wore it till like it had holes in it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Probably still have it in my closet. Awesome. But I, I, I think we are who we are when we're born, right? Yeah. We have this certain personality about us. So I think what he was saying is that everything you do makes you a different person, but it never quite, you are who you are. You change, you alter, but you don't actually, at least that's the way I perceived it anyway, and, and I thought of it. Paul, when you're not shooting photographs, and may maybe you shoot photographs uh, as kind of a leisure thing, what do you do to just have fun? What Do you go places to shoot photographs as, for fun? I do occasionally. Um, I uh, There's another photographer from New York and another one from New Jersey that I've been friends with for like 30 years. And um, we did you remember the Seinfeld episode when the guy had the Jimmy leg? Yeah. Okay. Well, we call fan. it the Jimmy finger. Okay. And we have to go and photograph someplace. So we get the itch to do something different. That's another thing that increases your um, skill set. So if you want to go get better at something and you've never photographed a football game, go photograph a football game. Go photograph a basketball because you don't see it. 
Because if you're, you're in that moment, you're thinking 10 times ahead of what the next play will be. Should I be in the end zone? Should I be over here? I? And I was doing this before there was autofocus. So it really hones your skills, especially if you're doing fashion. Yeah. So um, you do something differently, and it makes you better. What was the question again? I'm sorry. Outside of taking photos. So oh. I, I presume maybe taking photographs would have been a leisurely thing for you. Um, because it's such a passion piece for you, but is there anything else outside of photographs? I, I used to skydive. That was really cool, and that was that was another uh, thing that you can use as a metaphor for life. I think because uh, people sometimes would get afraid of it because they think you want you have a death wish. Well, no, it's you want to live. It's more about living than it is about having a death wish and and the control of your body, control of the moment. Uh, you don't think about other things, and I think it's so hard to meditate even to even you know, f clear your mind of whatever. And that was a moment for me. That's one of the things I was attracted to. Not so much the adrenaline of jumping out of the plane, but that, that, that moment, that single focus thing. And that's what I get from photography. I mean, you know, the word focus can be played a lot, but, sure, yeah. but that actually brings me, I, I am, I used to be worse than I am now, <laughs> believe it or not. But, um, uh, because I used to get higher off of the high of being a photographer, of taking the photograph. And a good friend that happened to be a, a Jesuit priest, too, years ago, that, it, that was a mentor of mine, uh, taught me that the highs and the lows aren't... You're going to have a high, but you're also going to have a low. Mm -hmm. So you find a happy medium in there. And I think, you know, by doing that, you're still creative. You're still good. So I don't take the camera with me wherever I go. It makes me think. It makes me think about how these lights are set up in this room. What John's doing over there. What you know, I, I see things differently. Johnny's over there laughing. I you know, I can <laughs> I can look right in his brain right now. You're good energy. Yeah, he's great energy. <laughs> I'll tell you, I skydived once or skydove, I guess if it's only one time. One time and um I'll tell you it was the only time in my life I've ever had the fight or flight feeling when the door opened and I did it the one time and I've, I've boxed, I raced cars. I'm a, I'm an adrenaline junkie through and through, but that door opening was single handedly the most frightening thing that's ever happened to me. Cause I, have you ever done it, Johnny? Never. <laughs> you have a guy on your back, like a backpack the first time you jump cause he's your tandem guy yeah. and the door opens. And I think what I didn't realize was how fast people got sucked out of the airplane. Cause I just imagined people would just jump out and they would fall. Cause I'd bungee jump before that. And the plane's moving, somebody jumps out and it's like, whoosh, and they're just sucked out. And I was just like in that moment and I had gone with my ex-girlfriend and she had done it once before and the guy tied up to her said, I think your boyfriend's scared. And I looked at him and go, you goddamn right I'm scared. <laughs> like I'm terrified. I would have been scared too. I go, I'm not playing tough guy here. I am terrified. What kind of plane was it? It was a little propeller. Cessna? A, a tiny little thing. What, single engine in the front? Yeah, probably. single engine, yeah. Yeah, probably a Cessna. Before, when I first started it, they didn't do tandem, or they were just bringing tandems on, so we had to do like a static line to learn how to do oh, it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and then you built up the static line, and if you did okay after four to six jumps, I can't remember what it was, then they let you go on your own, and then you pulled your ripcord, and then you progressed. And then the first time someone came in the air with me was like a big pivotal moment. It was like awesome. Oh, man, there's someone else up here. <laughs> I just... I Going up, you get the altitude meter, and I just remember looking at it at like 5,000 feet, and I was like, <laughs> we are way too high. And I was like, I got to go three, three, over three times this height? And it gets to like 10,000, you're looking down, and you're like, why am I doing this? This is insanity. But 
you know, you're right. In that moment, you're not thinking of anything else. There's, there's a real focus moment when you jump out of that plane. But I was terrified. I was terrified. You might want to. I would have been terrified too, man. I, I, I don't think I was terrified. I think I was one because I, I did bring my camera up and I photographed some friends that were doing it. And I was laughing at them being scared. And so and I'm taking pictures going, ah, look at him. He has no saliva in his mouth. He's, he's like, he can't breathe. His eyes were this big. And then when I put the camera down, you know, t to do it, I, I, when I, I held onto a strut. And yeah. so the moment that I was holding onto the strut and looking at my feet dangling down, you know, I had this brief moment of panic, and then the guy, this, the, the jump master, looked over and said, "Jump!" Or I forget what he what he said, but anyway. And then I just let go, and then it was just. And then after the first time, I knew I wanted. I was hooked. Interesting. <laughs> it was, was one hooked. of those. Things I did where like five hundred jumps. So. Wow! Wow! Good for you. I did it, and I said, you know, maybe I would do it again if I was over like a cool scenery piece. But I don't. It wasn't like, oh, I got to go do it again. And he, my guy on two, threw me out. And I knew he's going to throw me out on two. I knew he's not going to wait till three. <laughs> but it still caught me by surprise. He's like one, two, and then just dumped me right out of the plane and scared me half to death. How about you, Johnny? What do you do uh, outside of? Uh, Obviously, running a very successful and busy charity, and now a startup. Well, I um, most of my time now between the two, I would say the twenty percent is probably Immerman Angels, and about eighty percent is Close Talk. And we're about a year into Close Talk, year and a half. So that's definitely the bulk of my time. But I do spend a lot of time in, my, in New York. You know, my mom's out there okay. um, in Michigan, so I get to see her a lot too, and do some work stuff out there. We're working with some nonprofits there also. Um, but outside of that, I'm one of those guys, I'm, I'm kind of boring. I have to tell you, and I think sometimes people after going through like something like cancer, some of them, it's funny. I've seen it go both ways. Some people are kind of a, like adrenaline junkies will become even more so because like, wait, life's short. I'm doing everything. <laughs> and then I was probably one of those guys that was not so much. And then it made, which it does makes you, it just accentuates, I think who you already are. And then I've gone off the path where I'm just like, I'm good. My feet are on the ground. I'm kind of boring. I'm, a, I'm actually a water drinking vegan. Um, I don't drink alcohol anymore. I had to quit though because both my kidneys took a lot of damage from a drug called cisplatin. Um, a lot of rounds of chemo with that. About 20% of both my kidneys are, are scar tissue. 80% are functional and you, know, you can live a great life with 80% of both, um, which I do. But um, you know, just drinking. My doctor was like, "Look, if you drink like you did in college, you're probably gonna have like a kidney transplant or failure at some point." And I was like, "I think I'm done. Yeah, I'll stick to water." <laughs> yeah, I was like, "It's kind of funny when you're in those situations. You just kind of flip it. In my mind, at least, I flipped a switch, and I was like, "Okay, I want to live. That's an easy decision. It actually was an easy decision." Um, was the vegan diet something that you started right after uh, you beat cancer, or is it something more recently and it's really affected your health? You know, awesome. not right after, which is a question that um, is a good question because you would think like immediately, but what happens is after years of Emmerman Angels and meeting all these thousands of survivors, it's definitely more likely that the survivor community are vegetarians and vegans than the average community. You know, and again, I am a freedom first person. Excuse me. Everybody should choose what works for their bodies. Everyone's body's different. I don't want to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do. It's a free free choice. But for me and my body, and I feel like a lot of survivors, um, they just kind of feel the veggie diet feels better. And our first hire at Immerman Angels, who's getting married this spring in Santa Barbara, she moved there. I'm going to her wedding. I'm so happy for her. 
um, she was with us for four years and she was a vegan and she kept drinking these green juices and she got me hooked and she's like, just try it. Went to it maybe 2008, 2009, never went back. For you. So it's probably been like 10, 11 years. Definitely made you feel a lot better too. I feel, energy. Yes, I definitely feel like the most level energy, not like spikes. And yes, I feel probably the best I've ever felt. Well, we got some shout outs. We have Vicki Bauman said, everything alters me. Nothing changes me. Love it. Then we had Jane Manzuris said, love watching the show with Johnny and audio. Oh, great conversation. Great. Mutual friend. I love them. So, yeah, you got a mutual friend and some shout-outs. Yeah, we followed, I'm glad Paul and I figured that out. You figured it out, really, first. I was sitting outside friend. talking to Jane, and she, she looked online and saw you were going to be here, and she said, oh, my gosh, you have got to tell him that we're friends because I love him. He's the coolest person. Oh, uh, so she's amazing, and, and it's great to know you, maybe all you guys. Yeah, it's this, a good is, team this here. is amazing. Um, book recommendations. Any, either two of you avid readers? Not as, mu not as much as I used to be. I, I'm I mean, zero. I got to own that. I haven't uh, read a book since like literally I was like in my 20s and most of my friends like, that's pathetic. Don't tell people that. That's embarrassing. But like it's just one of those any things. Any podcast or anything you, you watch? Anybody you follow? Um, You know, that's a really... Because if not, we're just going to suggest wheelhouse. A wheelhouse yeah. in a second. <laughs> what do you think, Paul? Do you have any that you follow that, in, that inspire you? I, I get inspired really by people that I meet in the night. Yeah, I'm sure world, you get, you. you probably get a lot of one on one interaction with on people who are motivational and inspirational. And, you know, I, my guess is, Paul, you as well. I mean, you two probably have a lot more direct interaction with one on one with people who will inspire you. Whereas John and I, truthfully wheelhouse has been very inspirational for me. I very actually much. probably read a lot less than I used to because I get so much from meeting folks like you guys and people we've had on the show, but I search for ways to be inspired and motivated by people. And you guys seem to have a really good connection and network of people you meet. But Paul, I'll let you answer it. If you got a, something you follow or um, I get tweets from the Dalai Lama. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I love the Dalai Lama. Um, I, I, you know, I go to bed and I try to read. I, I, the news is killing me. It keeps me awake all night. So, yeah. <laughs> so I try to, to mellow out a little bit and, and with some other stuff that's a little more softer. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say, though, was I have these notes that, yeah. I, that I took, that, you know, that <laughs> just a couple things to, to talk about because I course. get carried away if, in no, case you didn't no, notice. No, no, we want, we want the stories. <laughs> Personality, Paul, it's a positive. <laughs> well, one, one of the things that I, I came to realize, you know, this is a very ego-driven business that I'm in. And um, so I, I, I was interviewed by this girl that was a college student and I forget what college, but she it was her last. She's a writer. It was her last paper, and she needed someone. So she, I know her, knew her mother, and uh, at the ending of it, I said, "If you can't think someone else is better than you, then you're not good enough." And I think if you apply that to almost anything that you do, because we get big heads a lot of times in this society, this you know world that we're in. It's too easy because people say things. You know, you, you know, it's. I'm almost uncomfortable when people tell me that I do something good. You know, I accept it. I mean, it's almost like it's not you. It's like you do this thing because you do it. And it's like, I don't have to work real hard at it, you know, because it's just with your makeup. So, um, 
that would be one of the things. The other thing I wanted to mention too, if you're close to closing, I don't, I don't know, John. No, I mean, we, we have, we have. The nice thing about not being, uh, <laughs> I used to be on WGN's Market Overdrive, and no knock to them because they actually watch, and I had a great time on it. But we, we had an hour time slot, and that was it. Nice thing about Wheelhouse is we have as much time as you guys want. Well, you mentioned about video, and I, I've learned a lot. Uh, you know, there have been a couple things in my life that have uh, altered me. And uh, one of them is this book and the people that are in this book. Irwin is a huge part, he, the Holocaust survivor, and his story. And uh, also, I started doing work with a, uh, a healthcare network called Access Community Healthcare Network. Yeah, that's it. It's been about six years now. And um, so I produce and direct the video. We have a team of people that we bring in. To, you know, it's a soft sell. You, you know, They're awesome. 205 West Randolph? Yeah. Uh, six, well, there's a couple different places, okay. yes. There's several I in the area. Southside. Yep. Uh, their offices are on 600 West Fulton. Got it. But okay. they're, they're in, they're, I forget how many they are. In them, but they don't, they don't, they are one of the, I have learned and been humbled by what they do for people. Uh, you know, there was a story about cancer from one of the people that's on the board now that um, had ovarian cancer, they, she, uh, the, the business let her go, she lost her insurance, and uh, they saved her life. And um, so these kind of things, and one of the stories that we did was uh, day in, uh, one, uh, life of a patient, one day in a patient, I think I wrote it down so I don't forget. Uh, we did one called Pen a Sister, have you ever heard of that? Mainly in the south side of Chicago, uh, because, um, they found out that there's a high mortality rate with breast cancer in that area, and it has nothing to do with race or color or anything. Or it just has to do because they're not getting checked. Mm -hmm. And so we went in and did a, a story on one of the survivors, and they found out that when they go to church, they, they'll listen to the pastor more than they'll listen to their neighbor say, you need to go get checked. So they put a pin on each person in church, and then that means that that person needs to go get checked for breast cancer and stuff. Great so, idea. Great That's idea. A, thanks for sharing that. I the other one was idea. called One Patient's Journey. And it was uh, a, a woman that had, had problems. Uh, you know, society kind of, she had two kids, uh, was abused by her ex-husband or boyfriend or whatever it was, and locked up, beat and stuff, and uh, cast out because uh, she didn't fit the mold of what needed to get a job. Which particularly with two kids, infants, not infants. One was, in it, one, was one wasn't, but um, we did a story on her, actually won an award with it, uh, Reagan Award or something, I can't remember. But uh, that one I was really passionate about. We really got a chance to get to the root of society and things that go on and show them and how people can help. Another place that I photograph occasionally too is called Flashes of Hope. Love them, Carrie. Yeah, they, Carrie yeah. Brown's a great Carrie, girl. Yeah, time for it's, yeah. I do some work with them occasionally, too, a couple cool. times a year. Do you know so. Ramon? They are also. You ever meet him? He works a I lot with her. I did not. He's a great. That's a great group, though. Yeah, Carrie's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that I mean, and I'm sure John can feel it too, just sitting in the room with you two, the passion both of you have for everything you guys do is infectious, and it comes out. I mean. Paul, the photographs obviously depict the passion. I have to go and take a look at some of these videos. I'm sure they depict the passion. But you just, you can tell that what sets you apart, and you said, you know, some of these people get big heads and there, there's an arrogance in it, is probably your skill set, but 
attached to the fact that you don't it, you don't do this for that reason. You do it because you have a true passion for it, and uh, it's it's infectious. So. You, I know it makes you uncomfortable when people say you do a good job. I think you do an incredible job. I think you do a great job. And I think the passion really does come through. What's next? Do you just, how do you find the next project for yourself? Is it, is that, is passion what you kind of use to find what you want to do next in photography and video? I think so. It's a little bit different now with society because of social media. A lot of agencies or stuff look for people on Instagram now with sure. a lot of followers. And you know what? I, I made a decision to put stuff on Instagram, but I'm not going to get a hundred thousand followers. I'm not trying to, that's not my goal. Yeah. And, uh, I, I want, I want this connection, this connection that we have in this room right now is what matters to me. And when I do a job and if somebody hires me, whether it's an ad agency or, or, uh, a cl direct client, that person has to be, feel comfortable in me and what I can do and what I can bring to the table and what I can help them with. You know, I want your vision and then I'm going to take, give your vision, make it work, but I'm going to bring you something else. And that's what I try to do. And I, I do that in life and anything that I do. And, and Johnny's done the same thing and you guys are doing the same thing here. I mean, it's, 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 it's that kind of connection that makes things work. That's what makes life great. It's the people and the, the on the ground connection is always the greatest part. Absolutely. Any favorite uh, travel spots? Well, I'm I'm going to be in a prison pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Where a, you go? Uh, Which one? Easter, <laughs> Michigan City, and Indiana. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I think seven out of ten are convicted murderers. Really? Uh, and the story came out. So this this photograph of this guy, Erwin. Uh, uh, I, I'll tell you, do we have time? To yeah, tell yeah, you we got story? time. Yeah. So his story is um, the last feeling of, the last memory of his father is going into Auschwitz when the, um, the Nazis hit him with the butt of the gun to let go of his father's hand. Oh, so his God. memory is his father's hand. Oh, man, and so fast forward, he, um, his mother and father never made it, but... Um, a couple months in Auschwitz and they said, we need a tailor or something. And they said, anyone know how to be a tailor? And so they put him to another place, which kept him alive. And he, he didn't really know, but he said, you know what, I can figure it out. And he went and, um, you know, went through, was liberated when he was liberated. Uh, I forget which camp he was in, but when he was liberated, he was already, you know, almost unconscious. He was unconscious. He woke up in a red cross thing and laying down and, and two Red Cross nurses saying, looking over him, saying, we saved another one. And um, fast forward, at 19, he moved in uh, to the United States, came in through the Statue of Liberty, and then um, uh, moved to Cleveland area, was, I think, a baker or something. You know, and I, again, there's so many stories in my head that I, I might screw them up a little bit. But he uh, was in a car. He had two children in a car, going to see the baker maybe at like four o'clock in the morning outside of Cleveland, a guy opened the car door and shot him. Had to have his jaw reconstructed. Oh my God. Um, you know, here's a guy that's, that survived. The Holocaust. Uh, yeah, oh, and then, um, and then he, you know. He survived that? Yeah, he survived, he survived it. And it was like so, I forget the story, it was something about uh, a, a police officer was walking by or he drove himself to the police station and then uh, the, they immediately brought him to the hospital. I mean, it was like this close between him living and dying. 
and he's had it but you would never know that i mean he was such a genuine guy so we were talking about getting people to do things so i photographed him first listened to him you know photographed him got these shots out of him and then i think i was in dallas or something and i get a call from the art director from jill and saying hey we need you to go back and we want to do a video of him and so i i had my car packed in my garage and i live in the suburbs and uh, I told Jill, the art director, go to my house. Here's the code to the garage. Drive my equipment, and I'll meet you in Cleveland. So I flew into Cleveland, snowing like crazy, talking to him, and um, got an opportunity to uh, – he, he's telling me the story, but he's kind of – you know, he's not giving me the full, the full thing, right? And I, I could feel it. And so finally I said, I, I want to hear, you know, what happened. And he's sitting back, and he said – Okay, I'm going to tell you. So I started recording. I'm thinking, this is cool. And then the story lasts a while because there's a lot that goes on. And I'm, I'm looking at my watch going, I think I'm going to miss my flight to myself. I'm saying this. And then he looked up at me, saw that I was not paying attention. He said, hey, you wanted to hear the story? I'm going to tell you the story. <laughs> and I said, there is no place in this world I need to be than right here. And so I got the whole story. They, uh, Rosemary edited it, and it's on, on Loyola Press's website, I think. Uh, but that was, uh, I forget, why was I telling you about him again? Uh, I mean, I'm, That's a in the story, story I'm, I'm going to take a look at it as soon as uh, I'm near a computer. We, somebody said, uh, I have goosebumps from that story, great story. And Kara Loper said, yeah, Dad. <laughs> That's my daughter. Yeah, she's a, <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. Um, Incredible story, and it's it's unbelievable. He he makes it through the Holocaust, survives, comes here, moves here, immigrates here, and then gets shot here as well. And, and doesn't hold grudge. And yeah, and, and what an incredible story. All, all these people had a story. I mean, everybody in the book had some something like that. And, and if you can imagine yourself in in this whirlwind tour, you know, there were other photographers too, but in this whirlwind of the part that I did, listening this information these stories that people are telling you how it can change you and change the way you see things and for him not to be angry to release anger and i know you follow the dalai lama and a lot of lessons learned in a lot of ways a lot of people talk about it but the release of anger and the short life we live is so key right i mean to be healthy yeah. mentally and physically because they're all the mind and the body right are swirled together in one and if you're gonna hold on to that anger even if it's justified like you said this guy's probably have a lot of reasons to be angry but he chooses not to be and be yeah. in peace and that's probably why he's lived such a long life he let it go he doesn't Can't want people to forget is. it right right you gotta talk about it you yeah. got you have to talk about it i agree otherwise history repeats you gotta put it out there um but to not hate back, right? Or to not fight back. Which is tough. It's, it's a tough thing because when someone hurts you, you want to hurt them back. Yeah. And it's it's tough to not, not yeah. do that, Especially, to follow your instincts. Yeah. Especially such horrible hate and hurt that he's gone through from, I mean, the memory of you know him gripping his dad to everything that happened to him. I mean, it's, it's hate and hurt at such a high level for him to have the compassion to not hate is incredible. incredible there's happy stuff in there too but i'm going to tell you one more story yeah go uh, i mean it, it. these are all in my vision stories you know what you know they're not written that way in there necessarily but what i've experienced through the people and i've you know and a lot of it was through translations 
Uh, I was in three cities in Poland, and uh, one of them was um, Pruskov, I think is how you pronounce it, and it's west of, or east of Warsaw, I forget, to the left. You go to Warsaw and you take a left. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by a couple, a couple hours, and it was raining. And I came in from Venice. It was beautiful. Got there, raining. Rented the car. Drove there. Didn't know where I was going. Ways didn't work half the time anyway, you know. So, uh, I, I don't know where I am. More times than not, I was lost. But that's part of the journey, being lost. And so uh, I um, I got to the place. Got there. No electricity in their house in that whole area. And they had it was dusk. They had a few candles. They had a, um, a fireplace, and that was it. And then the light on my flash was also a um, uh, video light, too, the, the, the Profoto made. And I used it, and uh, I put it down and photographed him. But while we're talking, the story came out that, because I'm trying to dig and find out why this guy is in the book, first of all, and what his story is. He, he was young, too. I think he was like 10 or 12. And I didn't know the story about um, the Nazis and the Russians and how they had to split uh, Poland in half. You know, I, I, my history lessons were pretty weak. So I did find out from him, or at least his version of it, is that they split it. The part that he lived in and grew up in was on the Russian side. And it was pretty tough, too. If not as, they were as bad, if not worse, than, than the Nazis at that point. So um, he was... Oh, they were um, they were taking all the food of his village in the, in a small village, and you know, giving it, just taking everything from him. And uh, his father stood up to him and said, "Hey, you know, you've got to quit doing this because we're all starving here." And the Russian raised his rifle up. You know, they're probably standing from me to you. And so the his fifteen year old sister that was there, the guy that's in the book, Yosef uh, is his name, uh, saw his sister stand in front of her father his yeah the father and the russian shot with one bullet killed both of them oh while the God. while he was standing there they proceeded to decimate the village kill people i saw photographs of it he escaped and lived on the streets for two years and then uh ended up getting back into high school he had a good aptitude they ended up using him to do planes and stuff or mechanical engineer i think they it was and he was kind of doing, when he was telling me the story, reminded of a little bit like Schindler's List. He said, um, he said anytime that he saw someone that they thought were going to go someplace else, you know, to maybe not make it, he would call them over and say, hey, I need that guy over here to help me with this. Whether they did or not, you know, it didn't matter, but he would try to get them to come over. So I thought that was a cool story, what, too. What an incredible story. And... Uh, what incredible people you've been able to come across and learn from and, and, and hear from. Um, John had a question. He wrote me a love note in the corner. He said, where can people buy the book? Which is a good question because we didn't touch on that. We did not. Uh, Loyola Press. Okay. Dot com. And I think in Amazon. Um, so, but uh, if you go to Loyola, uh, Carrie Fryer is the head of uh, marketing, I think, there. Um, and she'll, she'll, if you, if, if you want to call or just look online, but I, I'm sure they'll get you a book. Well, I'm going to buy a version of this book I'm, or I'm going to buy the book. And, and I it, love the way it flows. It talks about work, struggle, love, death, hope, 
and then obviously has some invites to wisdom sharing and so on and so forth. But so much of the different things that we go through in life, it's incredible. So can you imagine going and talking to eat, not each of them, but a lot of these people and hearing their stories firsthand? Yeah. No, I mean, I, both of you, again, uh, the passion you have and the level of motivation for appreciation of life that I feel having ha had the privilege of sitting here for the last you know hour and a half now chatting with you guys is, is incredible to me. And uh, I, I'm sure everybody watching, I've gotten some text messages as because my phone, people can't see, but my phone is here. I can see the feed. I've gotten some text messages over and over again that says, great show, great show, great show. Um, and I'm sure you guys have been very impactful for people watching and then obviously impactful for the people that you guys touch on a daily basis. Um, I, John, I know, uh, any other questions from you, John? So I want to be respectful of their time. No, no, I, it, what a great show. And I knew it was going to be two amazing people. Yeah. John, John uh, called with, me with earlier stories. saying this, yeah. this one's going to be a good one. Yeah. I knew we were going to go along and I was looking forward to it and thank you for delivering. Man, you guys are. I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to send it's you something. the video too of me in Guatemala. I think yeah. if you, if people, I, I tried doing it here a little bit ago and I couldn't figure out a way to put it, post it. Okay. So I'll send it to you. You can put it on and uh, it, 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 it's deprecating humor, so to speak. <laughs> so I'll tell you the story if we have time. Yeah. We do. Go ahead. Cool. So one of the things about National Geographic and shooting with them is you, as a photographer, and you go on location. And it's, you have models, makeup, and the whole thing. And you, you have to produce regardless of the weather. So that's a skill set that you learn that you, through years of you know, just figuring stuff out. So it's raining in Guatemala, right? And um, I was standing underneath this porch. And we, so uh, we were doing pretty good. But the model was over here. And to get, I ended up getting outside of the porch because that was where the camera needed to be in the shot. So I had no raincoat. I had no umbrella. <laughs> we're, we're at like this hotel thing. So I grabbed the um, cleaning lady that was walking by, and I gave her a few dollars and asked her if I could uh, borrow some um, garbage bags, those big black garbage bags. So I cut holes in them. You know, I had my, my you know, Panama hat on, and I cut holes in the thing. And then I did this little duck thing. And so one of the guys from, uh, that was producer uh, is Alan Schifrin from uh, Core 3 Creative. And uh, he says anytime he wants to laugh, he watches that video. Well, we'll put it up on, uh, on our page. Yeah, we all want to see and, this. And, yeah, we all want to see it. And Jill, Jill just put a link up in the video feed itself on how to actually buy the book. So thank you, I saw Jill. That, yeah. Thank you, That's Jill, great. for doing that. Thank you, so, Jill. Anybody watching... Um, either live or later, we get a lot of people that watch after the show. Click the link, and uh, you can buy the book. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think they'll be disappointed either. I, no, I, I no, think no. it's for anybody. And it doesn't matter what religion or stuff. I mean, one of the things I like about Life this lessons. pope is that he embraces a lot. It doesn't. Inclusive. Yeah, and and so it's more about being spiritual. And following that road of life that is good for people that Johnny was mentioning, than it is about. Um, the other direction, yeah, which I yeah. won't go into. So. Right. Yeah. Fair. Well, I encourage people to purchase this book. Um, encourage people to follow both of you. Definitely follow Immerman um, Angels as well. Volunteer if you can. If, if you know somebody going through 
um, cancer or as somebody who's a loved one of somebody going through it, reach out to these guys because I, I can guarantee that they are going to make life quite a bit easier for the person going through it and anybody who's a family member sharing in the struggle with them because uh, what you guys do is unbelievable. And uh, I appreciate, again, from both of you, the candid sharing of the stories. Uh, it means a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. And it's great to meet you, Paul. Great to see all you guys. And yeah. we're honored to be here. So thanks. Johnny, jo I, good, good job, too. I, I, I really, I'm, I'm so grateful for John over here for uh, the connection that we made. And uh, we're all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> 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 You're funny. I love it. He's going to have a water, I, I maybe really some more whiskey yeah. for <laughs> you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, John, what do we got coming up? I don't even know what we have coming up next week. Oh, my goodness. Let's take a look, shall we? This is going to be a tough show to follow oh. up. Well, next week is episode 50. Whoa. Yeah. That's the big 5-0. Yeah. We'll get so. to 1,000 and catch Joe Rogan someday. <laughs> so we're going to have a show, uh, just one guest, and I suggest you Uber uh, because the gentleman's name is Paul Letgo. He's the founder at Few Spirits, F-E-W, Few Spirits. They're located here in Illinois, uh, and he's going to bring, uh, be bringing a variety of samples of their bourbon, their gin, and their vodka. Well, I guess I'm moving. For right. us to be... <laughs> Need any help, John? <laughs> yeah. Paul's coming back on, too. Yeah. <laughs> for us to be sampling and critiquing, but uh, I've actually already tried it, and we're going to have a fun show. So okay. I figure with it being number 50... We'll have some cocktails on the air, pretend like we're doing business, and then maybe go out for dinner. Deal. I'm, I'm in. That's what I got. That's what we got next week. I will hopefully not be on any uh, back-related painkillers next Wednesday. And even if well, I am, I just won't take them that Don't bit. take them because we're going to have them in just studio. Drown the pain in uh, vodka, gin, and bourbon. Mo, guess, guess where I'm going on. Uh... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, guess where I'm going in May. Where are you going? Uh, Spartanburg. You know what's in Spartanburg? Oh, the uh, the test track for BMW. BMW. That's yeah. right. Oh, I nice. knew it was a test track for BMW or Audi, but yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Are you yeah. going to do it? Yeah. Because they have a testing My facility. wife and I are, yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Um, actually, I think one of their, and I don't know if he's still an instructor there, next weekend I'm racing at Road America with a guy, Johan Schwartz, is driving one of the three cars we're driving. And he was the, uh, he holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest drift and he did in a BMW. So I think he's an wow. instructor there. So I'll wow. ask What's him. What's his name again? Johan. I'll look. I'll remember that name. I will be driving <laughs> with him next week. So if he is, I'll link you guys. Oh, please. He's, yeah. he's like a celebrity in the BMW world now. My, my, so I, I, I got it. I had a little bit of, you know, in my daughter uh, used to be the marketing director for a BMW dealership in Dallas called uh, Classic BMW. Okay. And so we went there several years ago, and of course we ended up buying a BMW. And but they they let us go on the racetracks outside of uh, Dallas and do uh, you know with with the driver's ed thing. Yeah. And uh, I learned so much. And then we went to the Audubon here in Chicago. Joliet. Yeah. I'll be there on Friday. Is that the uh, Cote or is that the, did they rent the track or? No. So we're going to be there testing. So we're going to go with a member to test uh, those oh, three yeah. cars that we're racing next week. We're doing some setup. Have you done the on. Tesla yet? I've driven the Tesla. I've driven um, the the fast Tesla, the 100D. D, it's, yeah. it's frightening fast. Yeah. I, 
they're too quiet for me and uh, <laughs> they're they're silly fast but to me they just um, they after you get over how silly fast they are they bore me a little bit I think they're easy to drive. They are very easy to drive. Compared to a BMW where you have to drive it. Well, it's nice just, because you can just let it drive itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, even even the luxury part of it is it's it's different from a Porsche, different yeah. from a BMW, where you, you have to be the person in charge of the whole thing, even if it told you what to do. But Tesla, I mean, it'll go fast, but it's more of a comfort vehicle and... Yes, it their technologies are unbelievable, and and their technology is now starting to pop up in all different cars. Because like Porsche to take has one the on take on. But of course, take a Tesla on a course. They run out of battery too fast, so you can, you can't get. Um, so if you drive those Teslas, because they've tried them out a bunch of times at tracks, if you drive them as hard too as fast. you would drive them, yeah. Yeah. if you were driving, let's say your BMW at the track. You'd have one session, and then you'd have to do a full charge on the uh, on the car again. So they run out of battery. Mm-hmm. That's why Porsche's electric car that's coming out, they actually said that they were not going to come out with an electric car until they were able to use that performance consistently over the whole charge period. So it wouldn't if you drove it too hard, it wouldn't drain the battery oh, fast. Okay. And they wanted a charge to get to ninety percent charge in fifteen minutes. What do you like driving? Oh, Porsche guy. So I'm bi- I'm biased <laughs> there, but. Uh, I like everything. I like everything from Porsches to BMWs to American muscle cars. I just, I like driving things. I used to photograph, you know who uh, Mid-America Designs is in uh, Effingham? The Corvette company? Well, they have Mid-America is a, they have a racetrack too, I believe, called Mid-America. Yes, that's not the one. This this is a uh, aftermarket Corvette, and they, they used to do Porsches too, and I used to shoot their clothing line for them, and I... I got to drive a lot of those too. That was fun. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to have you back on once you uh, once you go down to uh, the prison. S- Spart- no, to, to it's Spartanburg. Spart- Spartanburg and drive those cars. We'll have to chat about the story it. about the prison. If I, if you don't mind, sure. is that um, uh, the woman that was the contact for Irwin uh, wrote a book with a priest in Notre Dame, and um, she uh, was the big contact here, but she also uh, went to a prison and wrote this book, Camaraderie, I think. Camarado. Yeah, that's it. And um, so she's going back to the prison on Easter Sunday. I'm going to be on CBS uh, 2 about 7.45 a.m. before the main thing comes on. And then right after that, I leave there and go to Michigan City. And and seven out of ten are on murder's row. Or, or at convicted murderers. So the priest that goes there feels that, you know, you're, no matter who you are in life, you still are valuable. You have a life, you know, no matter what. And so uh, I'm going to, they have this book there. Uh, the Mara sent them the, some of the prisoners the book and they walk around with it like it's a badge of honor. And so she got me to go in on uh, Easter Sunday with the priest and her and take some of the photographs uh, with a couple of the guys holding the book and stuff. And I thought that would be a great play off of the book and another valuable lesson that I'll, if I don't come back, you know, we, well, no, we're going to have you back. (laughs) No, I'm talking about out of the prison. Oh no. Yeah. We'll we'll come. We'll send a search party. (laughs) We'll do sharing location with you. Yeah. We'll do the sharing location. (laughs) Exactly. We'll we'll jump in uh, a Tesla and drive over as fast as we can. No, we, we would love to have you back on to share any more of these stories and um, good enjoy I'd love that. To. Enjoy there, it. There's a lot. Yeah, enjoy <laughs> it. And um, th- 
thank you to b both of you again. Thank uh, you. Th this show, thank I mean, I, I have people, thanks for the show, first time watcher, great show, and I've been getting text messages. You guys are incredible, you're inspirational, and I, I really, really can't tell you guys how appreciative I am that you guys were so candid and came on the show. Well, thank you. Let us know when we can help. Yeah, absolutely. Help. All right. John, anything Johnny, else, buddy? great job. Thank you. Thank you too, man. You too. That's all we have for the day. I've had experiences with cancer too, so that's... It's, uh, we're going to wrap this up. That's all we have for the day. Uh, I'm going to get us out of here in three, two, one.